Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So tonight we're going to hear about disagreeing well and also about listening well. We're going to think about how and why we value this as part of our work here at the university. And in doing so, I would like to just refer to some work we're doing with the university's culture strategy. I'm the director of the culture strategy. My name is, is Jennifer Barrett. And we've been looking at some of the academic uh, work around this idea. And we're developing a discussion paper as part of this work. In fact, it's being distributed uh, around the university at the moment. And what we've been, we're talking about in that, in that paper is how our university seeks to ensure that openness and engagement are vital to the way we engage in research and teaching with the public sphere and with each other. This requires awareness of our interdependence in the university community as a group of autonomous and single-minded individuals who engaged in collaboration across the institutions and wider community. Deliberation and moderation are a normal part of, of daily life in the academy. Opportunities to debate or moderate are frequent, whether related to our fields of research, academic disciplines, governance matters, or with our student bodies. Places where this occurs may be face-to-face -face or online. Characterising the different forms of debate reveals how there are different principles that groups, intentionally or not, use... Um, there are different principles that groups use to engage with each other. In the context of such interdependence, this session tonight considers what it means to agree and disagree well uh, within the academy. We seek to, um, to, uh, to identify, in some, in some ways, how civility works across the institution whilst preserving the benefits of disagreement. So in that, um, in that process, we identify ways of building our capacity to disagree well across the institution and to extend this to engagement with our communities of interest and the public realm. So thank you very much for coming tonight. Um, that is pretty much the background to our session. Uh, we're going to be looking at and hearing from colleagues uh, in the university um, who are dealing with these sorts of issues on a day-to-day -day basis, but also we're not just talking about how we relate to each other, but also how our institution engages with the broader public sphere. So how do our forms of uh, debate and deliberation inform the kinds of debate and deliberation that happen elsewhere? So it's a topic that, uh, that's um, of significance not only to our university, but as many of you would know, it's a very important topic in our political sphere at the moment, both here and internationally. So the way the session will run tonight, we'll hear from each of the speakers. They'll speak for 10 minutes each and then we'll have a, a discussion amongst ourselves, but we'll make sure that you can hear it. And then what we'll do is open the floor to discussion. So tonight, um, the first, our first speaker um, is, is uh, Professor Joellen Riley. And our second speaker is uh, Professor David Schlossberg. Third speaker is Celine Boehm. And also our fourth speaker is Kirsten Andrews. And what you would see from their briefs, and I'll give you a bit more detail about each of them as we proceed, each of them uh, bring a different perspective to this, to this field of discussion. So to begin with, if I could ask Joellen. Joellen is Dean at the University of Sydney Law School, holds degree in law from the University of Sydney at Oxford and has been teaching and researching in the field of employment and labour law 
since 1998. She studied law after a number of years as a financial journalist and spent some time in commercial legal practice before joining the University of Sydney. Her academic career includes some years on the staff of the law faculty of the University of New South Wales, where she taught principally in corporate and commercial law. Joellen is a fellow of the Commercial Law Association. Please join me in welcoming Joellen to the podium. Okay, well, it's, it's, uh, it's my privilege and task to speak on behalf of lawyers and uh, to talk about how lawyers and legal scholars disagree well. And my first uh, task, I think, is to, first of all, overcome the stereotype. The stereotype of legal discourse is the adversarial context. Lawyers are evidently notorious for picking arguments and the adversarial model of dispute resolution. It depends upon opposing parties advocating for one side vigorously. Um, and who can blame people for seeing that as the standard lawyer's uh, approach to discourse when that's what we see on pretty well all of the kinds of TV dramas that we watch all the time? The view promoted on those television courtroom dramas is of loud mouths pacing up and down in courtrooms, being rude to each other and opposing counsel. Uh, and sometimes part of the narrative even involves those parties advocating falsehoods so long as it's in their clients or their own interests. But this stereotype very, very rarely presents the reality of legal discourse. The reality of legal discourse is that most lawyers practice a kind of dispute resolution that seeks to find settlement and compromise. For most lawyers, going to court actually signals a failure in their attempt to reach an agreed solution. Much of the practice of law, particularly in, among transactional lawyers, is directed towards avoiding disputes in the first place and finding agreed settlements. Even anyone who has been in a real courtroom, as opposed to those television courtroom TV dramas, will realise that argument in court uh, is generally managed in the most respectful tones, whispering tones sometimes. It can be very hard to hear from the back seats. Uh, respectful of the presiding judge, but also respectful of opposing counsel. Indeed, counsels, ref they refer to themselves as my learned friend, um, even while sitting on the opposite sides of the courtroom. And they abide by very strict protocols in the way they present evidence, each taking their allotted time and not speaking over each other and listening carefully to the arguments made by the other side listening carefully about the evidence, making their submissions about how that evidence should be interpreted. Now, in court, disagreement manifests itself as the presentation of alternative interpretations of a set of facts, and this is the crucible from which resolution of an acceptable truth emerges in any case. I mean, even law's dominant symbol of blindfolded justice balancing the scales tells us something about legal discourse. I mean, the rules of evidence, the protocols of court procedure are all directed towards the orderly discovery and testing of only the most reliable evidence. 
some examples for you. You will have heard of hearsay evidence not being admissible in court. It's not admissible because it's treated as unreliable. Just because somebody else told you something doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean you have direct knowledge of the truth of that thing. Likewise, similar fact evidence is unreliable and inadmissible because just because someone did something once upon a time before doesn't mean they were the culprit on this particular occasion. The rules of evidence are all about ensuring the reliability of the facts upon which a court is going to reach an important decision. So while argument is certainly an important part of legal discourse, legal discourse also values argument based on reliable evidence, respectful interrogation of alternative interpretations of the facts. And that, I respectfully submit, Your Honours, is how lawyers disagree well. Thank you, Joelle. And so what we're, we're seeing there is, um, is a particular set of, would you say, rules and uh, agreed upon guidelines agreed for negotiation. Agreed protocols. Protocols, yeah. okay. So, um, so what we're trying to build up here is a bit of a sense of, you know, of that or who, who decides those rules and then also who moderates that discussion, who does the listening and, and then the speaking. So thank you, Joellen. We'll um, pick up on some of those matters again in a moment. Okay, our second speaker is Professor Celine... Oh, sorry, is, is Professor Celine Boehm, actually. Um, Celine joined the university uh, in January 2018 and is only the second woman to be head of the School of Physics uh, in the school's history. As an astroparticle physicist, uh, Celine has worked around the world, most recently as Chair of Physics at the Institute of Particle Physics Phenomenology at Durham University in the UK for seven years and has previously held academic positions uh, in France and CERN in, in Switzerland and Oxford in the UK. She has been on the board of numerous uh, national committees in the UK and France, including for the Institute of Physics in the UK and the major funding body in France. She has also been a grant proposal reviewer for funding bodies in Ireland, Spain, Chile, USA, Switzerland, UK and France. Is that all? Yeah. <laughs> Science communications is also an area that Professor Baum has made recent contributions to, including, uh, including doing a TEDx talk at Durham University, speaking at Pint of Science in the UK. Did I read that correctly? Mm -hmm. um, giving tours of the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, Switzerland, and running med many public engagement science activities across Europe. Please join me in welcoming Celine. Thank you. So disagreeing in physics is actually the foundation of a field. This is what we do. We just disagree. However, what we don't do is disagreeing well. And I will try to show you that we, it's really work in progress. We're learning how to do that, and it's not that easy. First of all, before I explain our sorts of disagreement, let me just talk you through uh, what is physics. Uh, sometimes people don't really know that physics, the aim of it, is basically to make discovery about the fundamental laws of the universe. This is really what we are after. We have a number of contributors. I'm sure you recognize this guy. Albert Einstein, uh, but we have many theoreticians who propose ideas 
And one part of a, a very huge fraction of a game is to actually disprove or prove their idea. And for that, we need evidence. Now, sometimes we also have mathematicians in the game, and notably Amy Nutter. Amy Nutter was a mathematician who actually helped us to give a fundamental framework, but a mathematical framework, to the, to the laws of nature that we discover. Thanks to her work, we understood how the building blocks of uh, matter interacted with light and with themselves, so how particles interacted. This was encapsulated by someone called Steven Weinberg, who got a Nobel Prize. And eventually, we understood how the, the particles acquired their mass. And this was proposed as an idea, as a theoretical idea, by Peter Higgs. And we finally, this was proposed in the 60s, and it's only in 2012 that we, can, we could actually prove that it was correct. Nowadays, things have evolved. Physics is not just about discovering, it's also about making use of a discovery. It's about making use of the fundamental laws that we know about. So it could be about I mean, trying to build a quantum computer, as we do here in physics at the University of Sydney. It's also about making the new material which goes in your smartphone. So it's, it's a very broad field. But when it comes to disagreement, I would say there are only two types of disagreement we can have. The first one is about concepts. Do we propose the right ideas? The second one is about whether the results that we obtain or whether the conclusion we, we derive are correct. And you may think, well, if you get a result, it has to be correct. But not always. So first of all, the concepts. Well, most of the field is about trying to entreat, trying to understand something that you don't see. You try to understand the universe, for example, but you can't go out there and really see it. You just have pieces. So you have to conceptualize, you have to give an idea. And for example, 100 years ago, we didn't know if the universe was expanding. Albert Einstein thought the universe was static. So when a few uh, I mean, uh, evidence came that the universe was actually expanding, he went back to his theory, changed it by adding one term, which is called the cosmological constant, and really tried hard to make it something which would help the universe to be static. That's not the right, that's not a rigorous approach, obviously. Uh, but then it's Albert Einstein, so I guess we can forgive him. But the point is, it took us 80 years to decide whether he was right or wrong. And for 80 years, almost every decade, some people would say, no, the cosmological constant is zero, so this term vanishes. Or 10 years later, people would say, no, it's actually there. So you have a funny graph, which I couldn't find, but you have a graph where you can see it's zero, one, zero, one, zero, one. And eventually, uh, about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we realized actually it's close to one. It's not even one, but it's close to one. And, and so therefore, we proved eventually, but we had to work very hard, we proved that the universe is an expansion. Now, as I say, sometimes it's about the results. And it's about, first of all, the ideas, but then proving it and proving it right. Now, there is someone that you all know, Galileo, the father of astronomy, who was right by saying that the Earth circles around the sun. But you have to be careful sometimes, because when you make some claims, in this case, in his case, you ha he had to face inquisition. And sometimes physicists have to face not the inquisition, but the value of their peers, the opinion of their peers. And sometimes they don't have the evidence to back up their ideas. So this was a case by Ludovic Boltzmann, who uh, basically is the father of thermodynamics. If you don't know what is thermodynamics, it's basically the physics behind the fridge in your kitchen. 
Um, but what he proposed was a statistical theory. Uh, he proposed that they were particles, and you can describe them as gas. Nobody believed him in the physics community. They gave him a hard time. So much so that he ended up actually suiciding. So it's dramatic in this case because a few years later it was proven right. And then everybody had to agree, obviously. Um, but the point is, um, people can be so passionate about their theory that even though they don't, have, they don't have evidence, they can really think that it's correct. Now, one person like this is Fred Zwicky, or was Fred Zwicky. And it's really unfortunate because Fred Zwicky uh, discovered that there is probably something in the universe that we don't see. And he was making the point that there must be some invisible matter. Nobody took him seriously. To be fair, he was also proposing to send rockets to, uh, to make uh, clouds disappear. Um, but unfortunately for him, nobody believed him until we reached the air. So he was proposing this in the 30s. And until the 70s, people just ignored him, which is maybe even worse than disagreeing. In the 70s, you, you will tell me, but I would, I would hate being ignored. Uh, but in the 70s, people started to measure the rotation curves of galaxies. And to their biggest surprise, so one, one person who is famous for this is Vera Rubin. Another one who is not known at all is Albert Bosma. But uh, those people, plus many others, realize that the rotation curves of galaxies are not what you would expect if the universe was just made of visible matter, the matter which constitutes us. They, instead of having a curve which goes down like this, they found that the rotation curves of galaxies were flat. And that led to, a, I mean, basically a revolution in concept. There is, the universe is made of something in the, in the galaxies and everywhere else. There is something you don't see, but it's there. Now, there is still, even though the community agree, it took us a long time to agree with this statement. It took us many more evidence to realize that if we look anywhere else, like clusters of galaxies, or um, in um, the way the distribution of light uh, is in the universe, it took us so many evidence to finally agree that, yes, there is something anomalous in the universe. But we still don't know what it is. And funnily enough, one of the controversy is actually the fact that um, people thought the rotation curves of galaxies is the discovery by Vera Rubin, and they all thought she should get the Nobel Prize. Unfortunately, she never got it. She died before. And one of the reasons is that other people thought, no, Albert Bosmat did prove the existence of this invisible matter. So sometimes, actually, it's not even obvious who gets the credit. And that's part of a disagreement. Now, Based on this, we now know that the universe has two components, has several components. There is the ordinary matter, the one which constitutes us, plus perhaps some new particles that we do not see. However, this is one fraction of a community who believe this is like this. Another fraction said, no, it's just that we don't understand gravity, and Einstein's theory is not final. So the picture is blurred because we need to move on, perhaps, and some people expect to, uh, to have their faces in the next uh, presentations. Um, I would say tough luck because right now, any, any attempts to modify gravity failed. But it doesn't mean that it will fail forever. And that's where the beauty of physics is. We have to prove it with evidence. Now, you will see that it's a passionate debate, and there is one you can find on a, on a, on a blog which says, and you can see, is day 12,805 in the world between modified gravity and dark matter. Dark matter being these invisible particles. It's a war. 
which I'm taking, uh, I'm playing a role in. But the role, sorry, the, the role I'm playing is to push both of them. Because in my opinion, you really need to just use the evidence and test the theory. So how do we disagree? Well, we disagree. We can see that we have two uh, uh, opposition. But how do we disagree well? Well, the first thing my community in particular learned, but I think the physics community in general learned, is not to make it personal. No one should suicide as a result of a conviction. And uh, for example, people used to, um, to start their slide, their presentation, with a grumpy old Zwicky, saying, oh, Zwicky was a nasty person, nasty physicist who presented the dark matter hypothesis. And then people realize, well, it's, you know, it doesn't matter whether he was a nice guy or not. It's all about whether he was right. And actually, it's not even about whether he was right. It's about whether there is this invisible matter and what it is, if it's there. Is it invisible matter if it's modifying gravity? So we do not need to be right, but we do need to be objective and we need to make progress. And for that, we need to examine all the evidence. Now, I just want to show you how passionate people are. Another of my colleagues fairly, uh, fairly recently wrote, only dark matter, meaning invisible matter, and not modify gravity, can explain the universe. And he went on, oh, I'm going to, to explain why. And reading the text, I was like, yes, it's supported by evidence, is right in some aspect. But on the other hand, everything is limited to a certain time. Today is right, tomorrow it may be wrong. And by collecting more and more evidence, it's only the way we can converge and make sure that we're dealing with the right theory. So in short, my proposition is, in order to disagree well, in physics, we really need to make sure that people actually use the scientific method and do not attach any emotion to their work. And as I show you, it's not always easy because people are passionate about the concept. But this is definitely the way every, every community, I believe, is going. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So, so, Celine, how do you think, how would you characterise, how do people keep their emotions in check, do you think? Is it through the discipline itself? Is that, is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, so um, a lot of people would actually defend their ideas whether they're right or wrong, they would, they would take offense if you say that it's, uh, it's actually wrong, for example. I myself, when I was a young postdoc, I presented an idea which was very different from, from what people had done. And I had people, senior people, very famous, getting out and getting angry and telling me it's rubbish and they left the room. And I was really petrified because I was like, oh, I need a job, so I should, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I was really scared. But, but then I realized it's like, well, I just have to tell them do the calculation yourself and check it, check it out. And if I'm right, I'm right. If I'm wrong, well, I'll do something else and start again. Mm. So I think it's an evolution. It's what yeah. people need to understand. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Okay, so now we'll, we'll talk to someone who's engaged with political philosophy. So we'll hear about whether they, you know, perhaps more emotional or perhaps more adversarial or a bit of both. So our next speaker is Payne Scott Professor David Schlossberg. And David is Professor of Environmental Politics in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. And he's the co-director of the Sydney Environmental in Environment Institute. He is known internationally for his work in environmental politics, environmental movements and political theory. Uh, in particular, the intersection of the, um, of the three with his work on environmental justice. Let's, let's welcome David. Thank you. 
Thanks. Yep. No slides. So yeah, I was trained as a political theorist, so I come at it uh, from that way. I'm really kind of interested in in how political ideas play out on the ground. So we have these sorts of um, philosophical ideas, but I'm interested in how they play it on the ground um, in real political engagement. So what does justice mean for activists on the ground, for social justice activists? How do practitioners understand political concepts like justice uh, or democracy? And crucially, and related to this, um, how do political processes deal with the reality uh, of pluralism? So I was kind of intrigued when the VC asked me to do a little work on, in the lead up to the cultural strategy on the idea uh, of how to disagree well. So I come at this from sort of a history of um, the political theory of pluralism and then some of the applications of the ethics uh, in practice. So I really only have three points to make uh, in 10 minutes and we'll see if I can get through them. The first one is that pluralism is reality, right? There's no way to get around the reality of, uh, of difference itself. So one of my favorite examples here, one of my favorite philosophers here is, is William James. William James was after the countering of philosophical absolutism, the whole idea that there was a single truth that every idea, every empirical idea can come together uh, into one. And in contrast, what James did was defend the idea of radical empiricism. So the idea is that what we experience and the consciousness of that experience uh, varies for people. And so the universe itself is pluralistic uh, empirically. Right, and that pluralism is objectively grounded. So we have a reality of incommensurable values, of different visions of reality itself, and that's the center of pluralism. And what James wanted was a philosophy and a political theory to recognize and embrace this real world of difference and disunity instead of um, insisting on the singularity. And the empirical part of this, I think, is really crucial. And because James is not defending a radical um, relativism. It's about multiple realities, but it's not about falsehoods and fictions. So I've used the example um, for my students. I always use Donna Haraway's example in this piece she wrote on situated knowledges. And she talks about walking her dogs on the beach and realizing that because the eye of the dog is different and it can't receive color in the same way as the human eye does, the dog is seeing the beach in a different way. And it's objective, it's real. What they're seeing is real, but they're seeing the beach uh, in two different ways. And it's this lesson um, that the world um, can be different. Um, it's situated, it's real, it's partial, it's only one way of seeing the world. And that, that partiality is a crucial bit here. Right? We see something as real, we see something as objective, but it's only partial. Uh, and there has to be some sort of acknowledgement in pluralism um, that there are different ways of seeing and understanding the same thing. So we see the beach one way, the dog sees the beach one way, an insect with its eye structure sees the beach a different way, a drone with some sort of heat-seeking sensor sees the beach uh, in a different way, uh, and what witnesses to crimes at different parts of the beach will see the crime in different ways as well. They're all real, um, they're all knowledge, they're all objective, but they're all partial. So beyond that empirical claim, the idea of a political pluralism is just how you actually sort of bring this difference into engagement. How do you recognize it? How to communicate it? Uh, how do you include that uh, in political structures? And so a lot of pluralism has to do with 
what we can learn from others across that difference, the value of understanding a variety of partial knowledges, um, and how to not just understand others, but maybe change one's own perspective uh, in that. And this, this is the kind of thing that's brought into this document on disagreeing well, um, with specific reference to Bell Hooks, who also does this um, work on the value of being transformed by hearing a variety uh, of positions, by listening uh, and by disagreement. And so that gets to the second point I wanted to make, which is about conflict. Um, and it's really sort of following up on, on the physics bit, because conflict is also a reality, right? Conflict is real, but it's also valuable, right? Usually political theorists try and do away with conflict. Everybody needs to come to some sort of consensus. We all need to agree, we all need to nod, um, and all get along that way. Um, but the political theorist Bonnie Honig talked about that as being a displacement of politics, and that politics is really uh, about disagreement and conflict, and that is really valuable. Right? that conflict and disruption and dissonance and agonism, agonistic struggle, um, these are really valuable parts of democracy, that kind of engagement across difference. So a big part of political pluralism is about supporting these kinds of agonistic encounters across difference, the moral conflict um, across that difference. That's the part about valuing disagreement. It's a, a crucial and it's an indispensable part of social life and university lives. Um, one of my favorite quotes here is from a political theorist. Well, she was a political theorist, and then she really got trashed in political theory, and she left, and she became a, a business administration uh, expert. She'd make a really good university consultant, I think, at this point. Um, but she, um, she started with a focus on the state, uh, and her um, point was that on conflict, what people often mean by getting rid of conflict, she said, is getting rid of diversity. Uh, and it's of the utmost importance that these two should not be considered the same. And that's really a major part of liberal political theory of liberalism, um, back uh, to John Stuart Mill, um, that there is a value in the diversity uh, of understanding. Right? I think that sort of classic value gets lost um, on those who shout um, fake news at any sort of image or uh, idea or critique, um, or those that demand the absolute superiority of a particular sort of uh, cultural or political approach. That's, that's a kind of engagement that doesn't value engagement, and it's, um, I mean, to me, it's an idea of, a, of an agonism that's intolerant, and I'll actually come back to that. So the third question, though, is, okay, so you've got pluralism, you've got difference, you've got uh, you know, a variety of realities, and you've got this, um, this idea that conflict is good. And then the question is, well, how do you bring those things together? How do you engage across that? How do you reconcile the reality of pluralism with that sort of value of conflict? What kinds of ethics are necessary? Um, how do you enable this sort of agonism that is tolerant and not intolerant? And I think, again, that gets to this question of how you're supposed to disagree well. This is at the core of um, what a, another political theorist, Bill Connolly, calls the, the ethos of critical responsiveness, right? And he calls this the indispensable lubricant of political pluralization. So that's where things like uh, mutual recognition come in, respect, uh, where an engaged reciprocity, where something called intersubjectivity, just understanding the point of the other, all these things come in. 
So some political theorists talk about recognition as a vital human need, that we need some sort of a validation of our dignity from others, and that's a core part of engagement uh, with others. Some people think it's a more psychological thing. Others, uh, like Nancy Fraser, talk about it being um, a more structural or status-based thing. Uh, so if we have racism and misogyny or xenophobia, that's sort of a structure that keeps us uh, from being recognized. So this is why, well, both in the, in the early US civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you have people marching with signs that say, I'm a man, right? There's conflict, but the base of the conflict is just being recognized as a human being. This is also the essence uh, of the Uluru Statement as well and why recognition is central to Aboriginal communities. It's just that demand for simple recognition, for respect, for dignity. Um, that's the minimum you need for full entry into a pluralist uh, society. So one of the most sort of depressing things for me in this space is the growth of attacks on both the individual psychology and the status of individuals and whole communities. So you have blatant disrespect and misrecognition in Australian op-ed cartoons, right? Disrespect is an art form in this country. So the opposite of that is a receptivity. Um, it's an openness. It's an openness to an intersubjective understanding, understanding that position of the other, understanding what the dog sees, understanding um, what the insect sees. Um, that opens us up to all kinds of democratic possibilities uh, of engaging uh, with others. To be able to think about coming at a problem from a completely different stance from what you bring to it. To make sense of things in a new way. Again, that's a form uh, of disagreeing well. So that sort of idea of understanding the other, of intersubjectivity involves accepting people, recognizing others, to understand the point of view of another, and to communicate uh, across those differences. So that sort of ethics of agonistic respect, of receptivity, of intersubjectivity, um, offer the ethics that sort of lubricant for understanding. All this gets put together, I won't, I mean, we can talk about it later, but all this gets put together really in deliberative democratic theory of sort of using those sort of ethics um, to move towards um, engagement, a sort of controlled engagement uh, with others. Um, but I think um, what we're seeing, and I think one of the problems and one of the reasons why we have to talk about disagreeing well is because we don't do that very well. And the, the, the current norm, I think, um, people talk about the new world of you know, right-wing populism or authoritarianism, but I think what we really have here um, is the growth of a form of intolerant agonism, a difference laced with that sort of disrespect and intolerance, and I think that's exactly what disagreeing well needs to counter. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, David. Yes, so we will be able to take up um, some more of that because I think what I'll do is I'll just go straight into our fourth speaker. So what I've, we've tried to do tonight is just to give you a sense of how the different academic disciplines are dealing with this idea. But also, I think, as you would have heard, this also uh, leaks into or there's, a, there's a, um, um, an experience of the discipline uh, disagreeing well, but also that also, I want to say... Um, uh, it, it, there's a, a relationship to the everyday for people in the sense that um, how does this then relate to how people deal with others in the street in their in their everyday life situations? And I think that that uh, capacity to 
to think differently about how other people may be experiencing the world is really key. Now, someone who has to do that here at the university is Kirsten Andrews. Kirsten is the, our Director of Media and Government Relations at the University of Sydney. She began her career at the University of South Australia, where she worked in advisory roles to the Vice-Chancellor and Deputy Vice-Chancellor in, and in Public Affairs. Prior to her current role, she worked as National Media Communications Manager for the National Heart Foundation and spent 10 years serving as a political advisor, including as Chief of Staff to the Federal Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry. Uh, she was Department Director of Communications to the New South Wales Premier and Media Advisor to two federal leaders of the opposition. Excellent training for coming here to the University of Sydney. Kirsten holds a Bachelor of Arts in Communication Studies, uh, and, uh, and that's from the University of South Australia, and a Master's in Public Policy from the University of Sydney. She recently completed a residential leadership course at the London School of Economics. Let's join Kirsten. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. One of the things I'd like to talk to you about this evening is about my experience of the role of the university in public debate. I'd like to share what happens when those ideas are contested. You've heard from my colleagues about how they work within their own disciplines um, and what that means for us internally as a university and externally in the wider community and how we, from my perspective in the media office, deal with those kinds of disagreements. So on what we call scandal days in the media office at the University of Sydney, when the phones are ringing off the hook with calls demanding on-air commentary on our latest controversy, and Twitter's ablaze with commentators calling for the heads of one of our academics, I like to remind myself what a terrible thing it would be to work at a university where people didn't argue about ideas. Imagine working at a university where ideas weren't contested, where there wasn't a variety of opinion, or worse, where students and staff simply didn't care. In one of my former lives as a political press secretary, I found that apathy was often the enemy of good ideas. For politicians who need profile to get re-elected, they need to break through that comfortable indifference many of us have for political issues and grab the public's attention. Recognition's what gets you elected, they say. So for politicians, disagreeing poorly is often rewarded and polarisation and controversy prevail as part of the context for political ideas that we call government. Sensible, rigorous, middle-of-the-road and fully tested ideas don't raise one's profile in a way that will ensure re-election. And I personally don't blame, blame the hearts of, at the feet of our politicians for this. The way our system works is that they're effectively contract employees who are up for very public job interviews every few years and they require public agreement from more than 50% of us to ensure their contracts get renewed. It's not an easy life, but it does ensure that they're constantly trying to stay on the side of the public. And it's a difficult balance to be on the side of the majority while doing enough to attract attention and garner recognition. But public opinion can be a fickle thing and it's often changed by facts, circumstances and indeed, thankfully, evidence. We know that concern about public expenditure in infrastructure, for example, goes up after a major traffic snarl. Rather than see this as erratic on the part of the public, I'd argue it's proof that they're prepared to change their minds based on evidence, which is where the university comes in. Every day at the University of Sydney alone, we're represented in more than 100 media stories around the country with an audience of between one and two million. In Australian media each year, there are 80,000 stories mentioning the University of Sydney, countless more when you look at the international coverage. 
And of course, as a large comprehensive institution with a depth and breadth of expertise across many disciplines, you might expect this. But nevertheless, it means our influence on public debate looms large on the media landscape. And that's just one university. You can only imagine the significance of the national academic voice once all of our colleagues' um, contributions around the nation are included. And for the vast bulk of these stories, the role of the university is to add an expert voice to the debate, to look at what the evidence says. We're a trusted, independent voice looking at what the depth of research in a particular area says. Journalists tell us it lends weight, expertise and rigour to the stories. Some of our contributions are classified as opinion pieces, but we're not sought for our opinions. An op-ed commentary from a university researcher looks at what's been said, studied and proven on any issue. Our Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research, Duncan Iverson, has quoted this as the reason for our contribution to public debate. He says there are plenty of opinions in today's media, but not enough facts. He argues that it's a public good to add our quality, reliable research to the national debate. At the University of Sydney, this contribution was embedded into our founding legislation. Governing the university's operation and participation in public discourse was described as one of seven fact functions in the University of Sydney Act. The challenge of this is that for many academics, contributing to the media means undoing everything they've been taught as part of obtaining a PhD. Becoming an academic means that you've done enough research in your area to add your voice to the great body of work that's gone before you. By definition, it makes you the lead voice in your own highly specific body of work. However qualified, inconclusive or imperfect an academic may consider their work to be, it's actually the creation of new knowledge, vigorously defended and assessed by one's peers. Of course, most academic research is conducted quite slowly, too slowly for today's frenetic media cycle, and doesn't reach the fast and sexy conclusions required by those writing for organisations that need readers to click on a headline to generate an income. Academics are taught to make balanced statements which provide qualification above certainty, to share credit with others where it's due, and to never ever make declarative statements when the evidence doesn't warrant one. The media, of course, requires the opposite. To deliver your grab, journalists want you to be sure, certain, definitive in your, in your voice and short. They don't care about sharing the credit or any qualifications you might have on your conclusions. Most of them don't want to read the 100,000 words required for a dissertation. They'd like it in 320 characters if possible. Uncertainty is the enemy of a good headline. Our advice and support to the university community tries to navigate a path between these two. We never ask academics to speak in areas where they don't feel they're an expert, and we suggest they rely on their own research and others as often as possible in making their arguments. They're required to remove discipline-specific jargon from their language to make it accessible to the everyday reader. And I think it's fair to say, for some, this is easier than others. But when a balance is found and an academic has the ability to communicate their research in ways the public understands, their contribution to the national debate and impact on policy making is unquestioned. Which regular consumer of Australian media could argue that the country's mental health policies would be as prominent in the minds of today's leaders were it not for Ian Hickey from our own Brain and Mind Centre? Or that the national debate on work and family policies would be anywhere near as sophisticated without the work of Ray Cooper? One can't even imagine a constitutional crisis in Australia without the sage of Anne Toomey telling us what it all means. These improvements, led by these researchers, through the public debate, are real and ongoing. But they require to constantly navigate disagreement, often with challenges. 
I'd cite the work of Julie Leesk, one of our um, experts who's published research on strategies to engage those who are undecided on vaccination, a polarising topic with, of course, extreme opinions on both sides. This can be deeply unpleasant when the debate isn't civil. And Julie's treatment on civil uh, on Twitter is one of the more extreme examples I've seen, one of the most disgusting examples of not disagreeing well. But where they choose to engage, our academics, the public conversation is always the better for it. But what happens when that academic process is contested before any kind of consensus is achieved? Many of our academics disagree with one another. On any of the controversial issues of our time, the university have academics who, while citing quality research, can argue different sides of a major argument. And if you think marriage equality and Israel-Palestine can be controversial, I advise you to not get involved at all in the debate surrounding the role of sugar in the nation's obesity crisis. These things can be tough. Academia requires that if you believe someone to be wrong, then you publish a paper. My colleagues have talked about some of this process for them. In a peer-reviewed journal, demonstrating that they're wrong. You go to a conference, you make your argument, you add your evidence to the body of work. And that process over time tends to work out who's wrong and who's right. It's not perfect, but often, and particularly because often an early mover in any particular area of debate can be considered heretical. Our Vice-Chancellor has cited the example of Professor George Arnold Wood, who opposed the Boer War. At that time, such a view was well out of step with mainstream opinion, and he faced calls for his sacking from the Sydney Morning Herald for his views. He wasn't dismissed, but he was censured by the University Senate. Of course, over time, his own views have become more uh, public, as the details of the war became more publicly known, his view became a much more mainstream one than it was at the time. I like to think that a censure by the Senate wouldn't happen today, and I've seen no evidence that there's any call for the university for any kind of similar action, but I think it's one of those issues that we need to watch uh, quite vigilantly. However, more often than not, the controversies that you read about in the media are based on how the university community debates things about itself outside of the formal academic process. I would argue that we as a community become less civil when we are less rigorous in our commitment to the academic process. I'm often personally pretty disappointed when a protest gets out of hand, an academic contributes to debate without relying on research, or the research is found to be faulty in some way. On these occasions, the role of my team in facilitating the public debate becomes more complex. Mostly, we seek to defend the practice of disagreeing well without adding anything inflammatory or unhelpful in the process. Where the university is wrong, and yes, it happens from time to time, our job is to help draft an apology and explain what we'll do to fix the situation. These occasions are thankfully pretty rare, but mostly the community understands that universities are run by humans and that we're all flawed. Disagreeing well hardly means not acknowledging mistakes. However, I'm often reminded that, we're often that, we, that we are capable of civil debate among ourselves, and even when the debate isn't of the more formal academic kind. I've been more than impressed in recent months by the decision of my colleagues to debate controversial issues using Yammer, which is our in-house social media network available to staff, known quite daggly as Work Facebook. Internationally, there's a huge academic community on Twitter. One in 40 researchers now use it regularly. But we've, as we've seen time and time again, this platform comes with some serious risks and generally isn't a place where people disagree well. Twitter's less than stringent abuse policies mean many of our academics can be subject to borderline or over-the-line abusive behaviour. On the other hand, Yammer, being slightly uncool, in many large institutions is seen as a tool of self-promoting HR departments. 
But at the university quite recently, it's become the forum for hotly debated issues, including the highly contested Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation. Once, this debate would have been held via the dreaded all-staff emails or in-person protests, mm -hmm. sometimes small in number, but always fierce in rhetoric. Or worse, there would be no forum for debate at all. There would have been little opportunity for nuance and disagreement among those ostensibly on the same side. On Yammer, the whole debate seems more cooled down, more rooted in evidence, and decidedly more civil than that I've experienced before at the university. Some of the contents of the debate have found their way onto the pages of the Sydney Morning Herald. We like to say that the internal is external at the University of Sydney. But the words that you've read about are not those of an angry mob or an officious management churning out propaganda. I've been relieved to see that despite our regular lapses and continual struggle, it is indeed possible to debate controversial ideas, even when held passionately extremely well. I think it's important though that we at the university mustn't forget that it's necessary to hold a PhD in order to do so. I was reminded of this yesterday watching my nine-year-old in her junior school debating competition, that very fierce annual ritual of Brighton Lasands Public versus Ramsgate Public School. The topic at hand was that foreign languages should be a compulsory part of the curriculum. Can you imagine debating this topic on Twitter or in the comments sections of any of our major newspapers? Fortunately, two teams of primary school students were able to assemble their arguments in two-minute speeches, compiling <laughs> evidence and research much more sensibly than you might imagine. Using both their own evidence and material they'd learned during their debate prep, the eloquence and dedication to presenting an argument filled me with confidence that a lack of civility isn't inherent in being human and that indeed disagreeing well is firmly entrenched in our public schools. At the end, the adjudicator awarded the very close contest to Brighton Lasands, explaining that they'd provided more details on their research and cited sources in their speeches. I couldn't help but note that my academic colleagues would be pleased that appropriate referencing and thorough research was the decider. Perhaps it's possible that the academic community in our primary schools have more in common than I'd thought. The challenge now is to make sure everyone on Twitter behaves like a bunch of nine-year-olds. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kirsten. There was a really nice slip there where you where you talked about Twitter. You said on civil, and I said, <laughs> "Oh, that's what Twitter could become on civil." Yeah, that's great. And also, I think um, that that it is quite interesting that um, uh, those kind of internal platforms and ways we've started to engage with, with each other around controversial issues has been a way for colleagues across the institution to understand the different, the, the different ways in which um, different disciplines uh, engage with debate okay. and with disagreement, yeah. Okay, so um, I uh, have given each of the speakers a, a, a task and asked them to prepare questions for each other, but I'm not sure that they've done that. Um, <laughs> So I have one, and before I open it to the floor, it's just really a question about, I mean, we've heard some good stories and some bad stories, obviously some challenges, but I'm just wondering if there's, would you say that there's, uh, is, is gender a sort of a key issue in, in the kind of, in the discussions in the fields that you're all working in, or is it something else? Is it, is it about external politics? Like, is there a, you know, is the moment in very much informed by that sort of... Um, I guess external um, Me Too movement, um, those sorts of things. 
gender. Think, well, I'm thinking, yeah. I'll let them think. Um, before, I was trying to find a word, and the word was porosity. So I was trying to think about how some of the internal and external influence each other. And I think I'm thinking here about how some of the issues around gender that we're hearing talked about um, internationally are also issues for our student body and also um, ourselves here uh, as colleagues in the, in the institution. And, and it is about sometimes about raising some really difficult issues that might not have been raised before around gender, for instance. So in relation to the gender profile of the university, it's a constant frustration of my team that we can't, despite the f many fabulous women we have, that they're, not, that they're very rarely the top 10 high, most high-profile voices for the university. Um, we think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, often they're not the lead authors in academic work and the lead author leads the media around a particular piece of research. The media is quite inconvenient and requires you to be at the ABC studio in 45 minutes, which for any woman with caring responsibilities is pretty unfriendly. Um, and so, and we also think that there's probably a, uh, this is anecdotal feedback only, there's probably a lack of a right to a media profile in that sense and we work really hard to try to make sure that public profile is something that every academic needs to do. There are some fabulous senior mentors at the university encouraging people to engage in the public debate. And we often put a senior academic in charge with, in touch with someone who's a bit more junior about it's the way to get known as the expert in your field. It's not a replacement for quality teaching and research, but it can somehow supercharge if you're, if you're engaged as an expert in the field. It can lead to some great connections. And we found that helpful. But that's sort of at a more practical mm -hmm. level. But I think it's, it's also fair to say that um, there, there is sexism in the media, it's probably not controversial to say that, but the treatment of um, women on Twitter is decidedly mm. less civil yeah. um, than it is, I think it can be difficult for everybody, but it's particularly difficult in that space. And I can't yeah. think of an easy solution for that, except to support and train and not push people mm. beyond their own comfort level. So one of the areas we're working on some of those issues is with the Science in Australia Gender Equity Project, which some of you may may be aware of. I mean, there are some issues with that. That okay, so there are different issues around gender, I guess, for science, uh, STEM related areas than there are for say the humanities. Yeah, so first of all, uh, the career in physics or science in general requires to, uh, to travel the world for in general. Mm. Uh, so this means that you, you never really know where you're going to be mm. in the next two or three years, uh, which means also you need to bring your family along with you, or if you're not, then it's, it's post questions about mm. whether you can find a family. So in general, a lot of women drop uh, after the first, what we call postdocs, so the first uh, time you mm. go abroad and work abroad. Then generally they do one of this postdoc for two or three years and then they decide that uh, maybe they don't want to go through this uncertainty again and then they stop. Now in, in terms to go back to this idea that, um, I mean, disagreeing well on well, gender, yeah. uh, I think what I can see, at least from physics, is that there are, there are two uh, types of women who survive, <laughs> or at least one survives, but um, so the first one is basically, I mean, physics is very alpha male dominated. Mm. We all know that. So the type of women who generally make it are basically adopting the same behavior as alpha awesome. male. So they tend to be very aggressive. And then obviously it's very badly perceived because you don't, you don't expect a woman to be aggressive. So generally they're really struggling. Uh, and then you have a woman who do not dare disagreeing. And so they're really, you know, they would uh, go along. 
uh, but generally they suffer from a family issue and so on. So at the end, it's very rare to have someone who is, you know, stating their disagreement, but still not mm -hmm. adopting a very aggressive behavior. So I'm hoping as head of school, I was hoping to show, yeah, you can do it. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to, uh, mm. <laughs> to bark or you, you just need to disagree well and say that you disagree. Mm. Thank you. So David, humanities, <laughs> gender. Well, I think there can often be an assumption that, you know, that it's not so much an issue, but. Um. Well, I mean, I think in this particular area, I mean, a lot of the earlier work that I talked about, the James and, and Follett and all of that, I mean, that was really brought back to the fore by feminist theorists and, and, um, uh, in the 80s and 90s. And I mean, that sort of feminist epistemology has been a really important part of, uh, uh, of the debate. I think um, the other part of that for disagreeing well, and it does get to this point, is... Uh, uh, around you know, sort of the early work on deliberative democracy and, and deliberation, there were some really important feminist critiques of that. You know, Haramas talking about the force of the better argument. And you know, you needed, mm. it was this various, very stereotypically male sort mm. of victory in a, in a discourse. And a lot of the feminist theorists just jumped on that and, and said, it's, it's, A, it's not necessary, and B, that kind of argumentation is just one way of communicating. Mm. Uh, and there are other ways to get across messages and get across mutual understanding than argumentation. And so Iris Young was one uh, who did that. So I think there's just been an enormous contribution of feminists. Well, you mentioned bell hooks in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the Disagreeing Well document, and I think that's crucial. So, Joellen, in law as well, do you think is there a, a sort of a gender issue around disagreeing well? Like, is it kind of more of an... Yeah, I mean, tell us. Well, I, I don't think that there's a, a gender issue in, in how we disagree because, as I explained, we have such an orderly set of mm. protocols around how legal discourse runs and it doesn't... Mm. I don't think it, it, it is gendered in style. That doesn't mean that there aren't, um, mm. you know, problems in the legal profession with uh, a lack of representation of women at uh, the bar, for instance, you know, uh, which tends to be uh, an area where people are self-employed and therefore take a, a lot of risks and have, you know, financially and have to be willing to work incredibly long hours to establish their practices, mm. that there are fewer senior women than there are um, senior men. Um, it's less the case in the solicitor's branch of the profession, which is the more, you know, the, the side of the profession that is in fact a, a tendency to be doing more transactional kind of work. Right. And, um, but I suspect that's more to do with the kind of work-life balance that you can achieve in different areas of the profession rather than some kind of a, uh, a, a gendered approach to, mm. to, to work. I'm, I'm very, I'm very loath to um, fall into an argument that says adversarial work in the court is masculine yeah. um, and dispute resolution and settlement is feminine because I must say my own experience in practice is you can have just as many... Um, you know, very hard-headed, hard-hitting women, as you can men. I just mm. haven't personally experienced any of that kind of notion that there's some kind of 
inherent personality difference between men and women that dictates what their choices are as to where they'll, where they'll fit. It's more likely to be what kind of other commitments that they have that will, will influence where they choose to work and how they choose to use their, their yeah. discipline. Okay. Well, on that note, I'd also like to uh, open the floor uh, for questions. My question is, so I've been engaging with different political parties uh, in the last two years, and but there's still some big challenges such as like when you try to get a radical right to talk to a radical left, they just shut each other off very easily. So how can you disagree well with these people? I mean, I don't think anybody should feel under any obligation uh, to have to uh, to engage in that. I mean, this is the, the Twitter question. I mean, wh why face the abuse? Uh, so I don't think there's an obligation there. But I do think that there are there are structures, there uh, there are rules, there are um, ways of structuring debate, right? Like yeah, uh, like yeah. a debate where we can do this. And I, I've experienced this in the past uh, in the U.S where uh, you, know, you had some really nasty anti-gay and lesbian referendums in, uh, in Oregon. Uh, and some people tried to, to get members of each community together in a deliberative process to try and get people to talk to one another. And one of the fascinating things about that was that sitting in a room, hearing people, coming to understand them, um, really softened those hardcore opinions. Um, but as soon as they left the room and had to report to their own groups, mm. it was gone, right? So, but it was that personal engagement that was absolutely crucial to getting people away from that nastiness, right? Mm. It's just like identifying people on Twitter. It's really easy to do it when they're anonymous, when you identify them and go yeah. after them, yeah. um, and you expose who they are and link those points of view to a real person, they soften. Mm. I'd agree with that. I think that when I was a professional political persuader, um, we were always reminded that elections aren't decided by people with strongly held and very certain views. Um, they're usually decided by people who aren't sure what they think yet, who need some more information. And so we used to always try to focus our time not on those people who are definitive in their views, but people who are seeking more information, who aren't sure or who aren't yet engaged in mm. the process. And I think that's particularly important in Australia where we have the compulsory vote. You're not required to polar, uh, you're not engaged in the sort of polarising that you might see in the States. But if you try to aim for the middle, average people, and seek to engage them, Apart from anything else, it's a more productive conversation, but it's also yeah. likely to be a more politically successful one. Uh, hi, thanks for a very thought-provoking uh, panel discussion. Does the panel have any um, quick and dirty tricks to introduce epistemic friction and like self-doubt into people you're disagreeing with so that they may consider the possibility they may be wrong as <laughs> like, self-doubt renders <laughs> us to do as well? If only. Over to you, panel. <laughs> When dealing with people who are often more ex significantly more expert in the area but have a firm view about how the media will play out in their particular area, my only suggestion is to say, why do you say that? Because quite often in understanding their rationale, it becomes clear that they don't understand how the media is going to play on a particular issue. And then we get into a more... I mean, this is my area of conflict sometimes with yeah. academics where they have a firm view about this is what's going to happen, this is how it should be. And because they're an expert in their particular area of academic academia, they don't have to listen to mine. 
Um, so in packing, unpacking and asking more and more questions, it becomes evident that they don't really understand many of their own assumptions and they don't necessarily understand the environment and then we start to find some areas of, of agreeing. So I, my personal tactic is to keep asking questions until we can find some common ground. Mm. And it's that's not a, a very good method. legal technique. We call it cross-examination. <laughs> <laughs> And you never give the leading question. You don't give the answer in your question. You actually ask very open questions and let someone discover the flaws in their own um, story or their own narrative around something by asking these questions that sort of peel away. Okay. So um, I would uh, like to ask you to join me in thanking our colleagues. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.